You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, April 28th. I'm Clark Wunnell. And I'm Elliot Chaparelli. With Mayor Adams cracking down on subway crime, street performers say they're being targeted. My husband and I, we've experienced a lot of police harassment. Also on today's show, a second Amazon warehouse is rallying to unionize with the help of some politicians. I want you to make note of the elected officials that come out time and time again. Remember that when you go to the vote book. It's very important. And Mayor Adams announced a billion dollars in funding to help stop the increase in pedestrian deaths across the city. New York would be safer, you know, less cabs on the street, less cars, more bikes, it's cleaner air, it's healthy for the environment. Get the bikes out. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News, I'm Julian Abraham with local headlines. If you live in a rent-stabilized apartment in New York City, your rent may be going up. The Rent Guidelines Board is proposing a hike. They say that landlords need to recover from missed payments during the pandemic. The rent increase could be anywhere from 2.7 to 9%, depending on how long the lease is. The board is scheduled to do a preliminary vote on May 5th with public hearings and a second vote in June. Job postings in New York City will soon have to include the salary range of the position. The new law has already been approved, but the city council will vote next Thursday on when it should go into effect. The implementation is expected to be postponed for at least five months after resistance from employers. Similar laws already exist in other parts of the country, like Nevada and Connecticut. Lawyers for the man accused of the Brooklyn subway shooting say he was improperly questioned after being arrested. They say 62-year-old Frank James had his DNA sampled and was questioned by the FBI without the presence of legal counsel. James is accused of the shooting attack on a Brooklyn N train earlier this month that injured 10 people. If convicted, he will face a possible life sentence. A baby boy is in hospital after police say his mother dropped him off of a balcony. Police say it happened just before 5 a.m. today on 51st Street in Brooklyn. The baby is six month old, excuse me, six months old and has severe injuries on the left side of his body after being dropped from the second floor. Police say they took the 29-year-old mother to Weill Cornell Medical Center for psych- psychiatric evaluation. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Clark Warner. And I'm Clara Sophia Daly. Earlier this month, employees at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island were the first in the country to vote in favor of unionization. Now a second Amazon warehouse just across the street is voting on whether to unionize this week. As Uptown Radio's Ilya Schiaparelli reports, workers held a rally on Sunday to promote their cause. The rally was held outside of Amazon's complex of giant box warehouses on Staten Island. Amazon union members, politicians, and union supporters spoke from a small wooden platform. The rally drew hundreds more supporters via live stream as Bernie Sanders addressed the crowd. The time is now to stand up to our oligarchy, to stand up to the success of corporate greed, and create an economy that works for all, not just the few. The rally also drew local politicians like New York City Comptroller Brad Lander and State Senator Jessica Ramos. Public advocate Jumani Williams told workers to hold politicians who didn't support their unions accountable at the polls. I want you to make note of the elected officials that come out time and time again. If they don't come out, 
When you're working, you're organizing. Remember that when you go to the vote book. It's very important. I'm talking about me too. You got to hold us all accountable. The work is in Staten Island fighting the corporation like Amazon is, you know, David and Goliath. Michael Goodwin is the president of the American Labor Union Museum in New Jersey. And he also has firsthand experience at the bargaining table as former president of the OPEIU, a union of mostly office workers with over 100,000 members. He says even if the workers do vote for a union, employers often deliberately stall the negotiations that are necessary to get a contract. Because the employer stalls and and does uh, intimidating tactics, which allow that not to happen. So we need that kind of reform where we need recognition of the union when they get a majority. Legislation is now before Congress to limit what Goodwin describes as stalling and union busting strategies. The legislation is known as the Protecting the Right to Organize Act. It's already passed in the House of Representatives, but it's sitting in the Senate, unable to overcome the filibuster it would meet if it were brought up for a vote. The vote at the second Amazon warehouse continues all this week, and the results are expected on Monday. I'm Elliot Schiaparelli, Columbia Radio News. Last year, there were more pedestrian fatalities in New York than any year since 2014. Nearly 300 pedestrian and bicycle riders were killed in the city. All were struck by cars. A new five-year transportation plan developed by the city seeks to change that. It's called Streets Plan, and on Tuesday, the mayor announced nearly a billion dollars in funding for the program starting next year. Meanwhile, on Saturday, the Department of Transportation held a car-free day, and as Linnea Arden reports, it gave New Yorkers a glimpse of what street life may begin to look like. Last Saturday, Broadway was quiet. Well, quiet from cars, that is. Times Square is usually jammed with cars and trucks and buses. But last week, a stage was set up right in the middle of the lanes, and Broadway performer Ariel Jacobs sang to a crowd. Molly Braverman is the director of the Broadway Green Alliance. She says Car Free Day is a way to get New Yorkers to rethink the use of street space. Uh, So it's a wonderful opportunity for folks to discover the other ways that we can move about the city without having to get in cars and produce those those emissions. Uh, And it also opens up, you know, space and green space for art. A little further down on Broadway at 34th Street, Anna Melinda sat under a white tent at a table with flyers, pins and signs promoting the open streets. Melinda is the Manhattan organizer for Transportation Alternatives, a nonprofit lobbying for safe and fair streets. She says these kinds of changes should be permanent. We're taking advantage of this section of Broadway being car-free, which we would love to see like every day of the year, not just today. Right next to the tent, a group of young children were drawing stick figures with chalk on the street. You can see so many activities and things going around. You can see the community. You see people having fun. There's kids walking and running around the street around us. So I think it's the best example for people to understand when you're using streets for other uses. But the new streets plan is mostly about safety. And it turns out the changes in city streets can have some surprising impacts. A case study by the Department of Transportation found that introducing a protected bike lane can cut pedestrian fatalities and injuries by half. The plan will implement many small changes in the streets that designers hope will make a big improvement in safety. Don Tone is a traffic engineer. He's been consulting with the city for over 30 years. 
He says that with nearly a billion dollars approved for city streets, the city can move forward with this ambitious plan. There's three levers they have to pull, right? There needs to be improvements in regarding enforcement, regarding education, regarding engineering and legislation. And having the funding of this size allows you to pull all those levers simultaneously to really maximize the effect of each one of them complementing each other. At 25th and Broadway, Tina Crockett's neon yellow bike helmet and reflective glasses were unmissable in the middle of the street. She says that, at least on weekends, there should be more room on streets for bikes and pedestrians. New York would be safer, you know, less cabs on the street, less cars, more bikes, it's cleaner air, it's healthy for the environment, get the bikes out. For now at least, the streets plan will keep Broadway open to traffic. Linnea Arden, Columbia Radio News. When it comes to COVID, people aren't sure exactly what to call this moment we're in. Earlier this week, Dr. Anthony Fauci said the U.S. moved out of the pandemic phase. A day later, he said, no, the pandemic isn't over. We're just transitioning. Reporter Rebecca Robinson asked residents of Harlem and Morningside Heights what they would call this strange and uncertain moment. Here in New York, the percentage of positive cases has continued to increase over the last month, while the hospitalization and death rates have declined. Along Frederick Douglass Boulevard, some transit riders are wearing their masks, while others don't really seem to care. Ray Davis is walking his dog. I would name this the recovery stage. The recovery stage. He says that it feels like everyone is just moving on with their lives. So you really don't have a choice. You, you sort of have to get with the program, you know, like... Nobody wants to wear masks, nobody wants to do this, nobody wants to do that. I think the problem is a control issue for people now. At this point, people just want to have complete control over their lives, even if the other person doesn't agree. So I think we're at the stage now where people have to do what they feel is best for themselves and their families without worrying about what the next person does. Speaking of the next person, I met another dog walker with a different description of this phase. Hopefully uh, post-recovery, I guess. Emmanuel Ruvalcaba says that there's comfort in knowing that a significant number of New Yorkers are vaccinated. And he's even seen a change in the neighborhood that gives him hope that the end of the pandemic is in sight. I think over the last few weeks, I've, I've definitely seen a lot more relaxation in restaurants and bars and uh, stores and, and things uh, of that nature. So uh, I think with the weather changing as well, it's uh, made a lot of people kind of lighten up a little bit. And people have places to go and things to do. Ileana Vanderlinde is also walking her dog, which is that kind of neighborhood. I think that's a, um, I think it's, we're kind of at the post-pandemic, post-pandemic phase. And, you know, I don't necessarily, um, you know, seek out large gatherings, right? But I do have to take a plane. I'm still going to be wearing a mask on a plane. And if other people don't, that's their decision. I will be wearing a mask. This moment of the pandemic feels just as uncertain as it did before. Masking guidelines, new variants of the virus, the number of boosters that may be required. And Columbia University student Shannon Benz has even faced uncertainty of her own COVID exposure. I keep calling it a post-pandemic in some aspects, but I know that it's still ever-present, so it's this weird ambiguity period. Um, I mean, I still think it's the pandemic, but it's this weird liminal space. A weird liminal space indeed as the pandemic continues to evolve across the country. Call it the recovery stage, post-recovery, or post-pandemic, many New Yorkers continue to carry on.
Rebecca Robinson, Columbia Radio News. The Panel for Educational Policy, or PEP, was expected to once again rubber-stamp New York City school funding formula at their meeting last night. But they didn't. The formula is the main source of funding for the city's schools. It's based on student enrollment and needs. Apparently, that's not a straightforward equation. The panel surprisingly voted down the formula, dealing another blow to the Adams administration's policy goals. I spoke with Alison Rhoda, assistant professor of education at Malloy College in Long Island, and I asked her, what is the PEP? The Panel for Education Policy is like a school board. It's a way to have checks and balances over education policy decisions being made from the mayor and the chancellor. They're in charge of approving or voting down education policies. Often the, the proposals will be approved by, by this panel? Yes. Most of the time, those policies are approved. I've attended meetings before. They sometimes go late into the night uh, if it's a, a contentious or highly debated policy. What happened last night? What was the proposal and, and why was it rejected? New York City has a fair student funding formula, um, but critics have said that it's outdated. It doesn't provide full funding to schools that need it the most. Um, so right now, the fair funding formula gives more money to schools with poor students, special education populations, um, multilingual learners learning English. The one part of this formula is that, and this is highly debated, extra money goes to selective schools with high achieving students. And often those schools have low numbers of Black, Latinx, uh, low-income students. And I read in one report that they get $1,000 extra dollars per student in those schools. So that's a piece of the formula that seems to be inequitable. So at last night's meeting, one of the CEC presidents um, from District 16 Nikwan McLean, he brought up that there was a task force started in 2019 to change the formula. And they uh, wanted additional weights put on the formula for students living in temporary housing or in foster care. And they wanted to stop the practice of sending more money to selective schools. But that task force and the report that they came up with that was never released by Mayor de Blasio. Could this disruption have uh, consequences for New York City pupils and parents next year? I can't imagine that it would be stalled long enough to really disrupt school opening or or um, that kind of thing. I think right now it's it's just going to delay principals from making budget decisions for the next school year. It's the second policy that the the panel has rejected from May Adams' office. Um, what does this signal in terms of the way he's perceived by the panel and the way his policies are are able to be implemented? I think it signals the 
the call for the end of mayoral control of the New York City public schools. The DOE and the CECs and all of the policymakers in the school system itself have the authority, have the um, expertise to run the, the schools. When you have a mayor, a politician <laughs> running a school system, you infuse even more politics into the equation. And we see how, what, that, what the effect is on that. Thank you, Alison. Thank you so much for speaking to us. You're welcome. <laughs> Have a great day. Thanks for inviting me. That was Alison Rhoda, Assistant Professor of Education at Malloy College. The community board representing New York City's Chinatown has voted to reject a plan for a new homeless shelter there. The city had been planning to open a new sleeping facility for 150 people in an old hotel on Grand Street. I went out and asked why this particular shelter has run into such opposition. The proposed shelter isn't your typical homeless facility with hundreds of beds in a room. It's called a stabilization site. It's basically a single occupancy hotel for the homeless that allows for privacy. It also includes housing specialists, therapists, and case managers on site. Jenison Johnson Avril is the director of advocacy communications for Housing Works, a nonprofit that would run the center. We think this is a, a wonderful way uh, to provide uh, immediate services to people with the most immediate need, with the end goal being to, to then work with them to eventually move them into permanent housing. Some street homeless New Yorkers have historically rejected being moved into traditional shelters. And this shelter, which provides fewer restrictions, is expected to be more widely used by the homeless. But for the residents who live close by, it's a problem. At an almost three-hour meeting on Tuesday in Chinatown, people signed up to speak against the plan. One of the most vocal opponents of the shelter is Susan Lee, an advocate for Chinatown and the founder of Alliance for Community Preservation and Development. She says the neighborhood already has six shelters. Chinatown has met its obligation a fair share. We've done more than our obligation. What is the city's obligation to us to provide a safe, and thriving environment for our community? That is my question. And the new design of the shelter also had Lee concerned. It doesn't have a curfew, unlike other shelters that have a 10 p.m. curfew. Um, it has a harm reduction element to it, meaning there is open drug use, um, and they allow sex offenders, level one, two, and three. One of the issues Chinatown community members cited was the murder of 35-year-old Christina Yuna Lee. A homeless man is charged with her murder. Those are real life experiences. They're not perception of danger. That is the danger that um, our community lives through. Another person who spoke at the meeting was Don Lee, a Chinatown community activist and business leader. He says he would not be opposed to the shelter if he believed it would actually work. But he says the shelter would just warehouse the homeless population in Chinatown instead of solving the real issue, which is lack of affordable housing. Oh for real solution for the homeless, not this sham, not this nonsense. You know, government come up with all these good ideas, but where's the accountability? Advocates in Chinatown have raised $12,000 for a lawsuit against the city, stating that the neighborhood has too many shelters already. But Mayor Eric Adams' executive budget plan for the coming year includes $171 million in funding for sites like this one. And they have to go somewhere. 
the Chinatown Community Board vote to oppose the shelter is advisory, and it will ultimately be up to Mayor Adams whether or not the plan goes through. Clara Sophia Daly, Columbia Radio News. When COVID closed the world down, some musicians pivoted to making music on live streaming platforms like Twitch. Now, musicians are wondering how much of their business should stay online. David Newtown profiles the dilemma of one jazz musician. Before the pandemic, you would have seen 28-year-old Ryan Slacko playing electric piano at jazz clubs around the city, grooving with his bright blue hair. But for the past two years, his most consistent gig has been in his Harlem apartment. In his office, Slacko has a live streaming setup. There's a big electric keyboard with organ pedals below. Next to it, cameras and screens. This keyboard here talks to the laptop and then gets the notes out. So for example, um, I have a few other sounds. Um, Slackco built up this collection of equipment during COVID. I knew that I wanted to get into live streaming and just, if nothing else, just be able to play for people in some capacity. Because that's what I really miss, just playing for people. What you're hearing is one of Slackco's performances on Twitch, a live streaming platform that's most well known for its video game enthusiasts. Slackco jams out while covering Miles Davis's milestones. His eyes are flashing back and forth from the piano keys to his computer screen to read chat. The screen switches between a wide shot of his face to an overhead shot of his fingers. As Slacko plays, viewers chat with each other, cheer him on, and send emojis flying across the screen. Whenever a new viewer subscribes, a black and white gif appears of people applauding. They make supporting a creator feel fun and engaging and not like this annoying, boring chore you have to do. Like, ugh, I gotta support this guy, I gotta donate. But sometimes they don't really donate enough. Over the three and a half hour stream, Slacko makes $45 in tips and gets $20 from new monthly subscriptions. He says that's far below what he would normally expect at a live show. If I'm taking a gig in New York, these days I typically want a minimum of 100 for three hours or whatever, which is not a lot. Though making money through Twitch can be volatile, Slacko says it is nice to be able to perform and play the music he wants to play. Many other musicians have also found refuge in Twitch streams. Dr. William O'Hara is a professor of music at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. He studies music making on the internet. Dr. O'Hara says Twitch allows the audience to feel like they're in the room with the streamer. It's almost this sort of salon environment where the artist, you know, the artist is the center of it and the artist is making music. But really the point of the live stream is to interact with people. O'Hara says that with the rise of Twitch and live streaming, it's an extra area that musicians are almost required to dip their toes into. I mean, I think that if you're a freelance musician these days, you sort of can't afford to leave that opportunity on the table. And I think a lot of people try to make a stab at it to some degree. Twitch's average user base doubled in size from January 2020 to April 2020 because of all the people who had to stay home. It wasn't just video game streams. Music channels saw a viewership increase as well. Doug Perry is a Twitch streamer who uses the screen name Drum Ultima. He plays percussion instruments like marimba and vibraphone and covers video game music. Maybe you recognize this famous tune? It's from The Legend of Zelda. 
Perry says he had a Twitch channel before COVID hit, but he really started to focus on it early on in the pandemic. He says his monthly income from Twitch tripled during those first few months. I saw my profits increase dramatically as a result of the newfound attention and focus on my stream, probably combined with the fact that I had more of an audience because everybody else was staying inside. And that's what kept me afloat through the pandemic was my streaming as a result. Though Perry was thankful for that attention and support, he's having to step back a bit from Twitch due to worries about burnout. He still signs on for Marimba Mondays, though. It has been and will continue to be auxiliary to the gigs and the facets of my career that are beginning to come back, which simply provide more stability, both monetarily and psychologically, <laughs> to me um, as a result. As COVID restrictions have lifted, viewership is going down. For Slatko, the blue-haired jazz pianist, his audience has decreased about half since the end of 2020, when it was at its highest. I've been talking to a lot of streamers who have seen dips in their numbers, probably because people are going outside again, living their lives. Um, yeah, it's just how it is, I guess. And so Slatko must leave his Twitch setup and also head outside. Tonight's show is at The Cutting Room on East 32nd Street. He's on his synths and in his element. This is more lucrative than his Twitch session, but not by much. He made 80 bucks. Slacko had hoped he could live a life where he was doing both Twitch and live gigs, but he says the numbers just aren't adding up. So, here's his plan. He's stepping back from streaming, he's being picky with gigs, and he's looking into teaching, coding, or video editing opportunities. I've just kind of accepted that, you know, this is a hard profession and it's not it's not my fault. Like, I didn't fail as a musician because I'm not able to make a living for it. It's just the economy failed me. Slacko thinks this is a long-term plan. Music won't be out of his life. He wants to save up money to make an album. But living expenses mean he can't keep only doing what he loves. David Newtown, Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Clara Sophia Daly. And I'm Clark Wunnell. Still to come on the show, street performers are suffering under the mayor's subway crackdown. Plus, a conversation about redistricting, how a community rallied for Ukraine, and the importance of staying true to yourself. But first, a look at the national headlines. From Columbia Radio News, I'm Sarah Yokobitis. The Commerce Department announced today that the American economy unexpectedly shrank in the first quarter of the year. The U.S. gross domestic product declined 1.4% annualized. It's the weakest quarter since the early months of the pandemic. The decline is due to the recent Omicron variant wave and the ongoing war in Ukraine. Consumer spending was up by 0.7%. In a speech at the White House today, President Biden asked Congress for $33 billion in aid for the Ukrainian war effort. It's more than twice the size of previous aid packages and indicates that the war is not expected to end anytime soon. The majority of the package will be weapons, along with additional humanitarian aid. President Biden also asked Congress to make it easier to seize assets such as yachts and airplanes from Russian oligarchs. Moderna has requested an emergency use authorization for its COVID vaccine for children five and under. The drug maker has asked the government to approve a series of two shots, each with a fourth of the adult dose. 
They're the first drug maker to seek authorization for a children's COVID vaccine, a decision is not expected until at least June. The Food and Drug Administration announced today that it will ban menthol-flavored cigars and cigarettes. Public experts say the law could save hundreds of thousands of lives. The ban is expected to primarily affect black smokers. More than 85% of all black smokers use menthols, and African-American men have the highest rates of lung cancer in the country. The ban will take at least a year to go into effect. The Nasdaq rose today following strong earnings reports from Apple and Facebook. The Dow jumped 600 points. Sari Okobitis, Columbia Radio News. Yesterday, the State Court of Appeals rejected a congressional districting map drawn by Democrats in New York State Legislature. New York's highest court ruled that the map was unconstitutional due to partisan gerrymandering. The new map could have reduced the number of Republican congressional districts in favor of Democrats. Now, a new map will be drawn not by state representatives, but by the appeals court. Jeff Weiss is a professor and senior fellow at New York Law School. He leads their New York Census and Redistricting Institute. He says that this delay in redistricting will upset the schedule for elections in the coming year. Well, right now, uh, this means that the primary for governor, lieutenant governor, and state assembly uh, for other local judicial convention candidates will take place in June as planned. Uh, But because the State Court of Appeals invalidated uh, the state Senate and congressional plans, a state court in uh, Steuben County, New York, is in the process of redrawing the Senate and congressional lines uh, with the likelihood of uh, an an additional primary for Congress and the state Senate in, in late August. So voters will have to go to the polls not once but twice because of this decision. Twice. Uh, this is, you know, this is causing confusion. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, it would likely cause candidates who have filed to run for Congress and the state Senate to possibly run uh, the process all over again using different district uh, boundaries. Uh, so it'll be costly, time-consuming, uh, confusing, and annoying. So walk me through what happened leading up to this court decision, because I think that's really important. There have been several attempts to draw this map that haven't worked out. Okay, well, in 2014, New York voters approved a constitutional amendment uh, that created uh, a so-called independent redistricting uh, commission. Commission members themselves uh, were tasked with developing a set of Senate, Assembly, and congressional maps for the legislature to approve or Uh, reject. After the legislature rejected those in January, the commission was tasked with going back to the drawing boards and developing a new set of plans to submit to the legislature. Um, That failed, and then the legislature picked up uh, from there and then enacted new Senate Assembly and Congressional lines uh, in early February uh, that were approved by Governor Hochul. Uh, And that led us to the state Supreme Court Justice uh, holding the congressional plans uh, to be a partisan gerrymander in violation of one of several state constitutional criteria. Then subsequently, uh, and we had the appeal yesterday to the state court of appeals, which held that the uh, entire, uh, that the challenge plans, the Senate and assembly plans were a uh, partisan gerrymander and directed, uh, yesterday directed the the state 
uh, Supreme Court justice to enact new Senate and congressional lines. So that's where we are right now. 22 out of 26 seats in this plan that was rejected were supposed to go to Democrats. What do you think of the ruling? What do you think of the plan? The court removed the legislature from the redistricting process. Uh, and the court basically set up the, a situation where the same thing could happen again 10 years from now, that if this uh, uh, advisory commission fails to do its job, then the legislature is cut off from doing its job and uh, redistricting would be done by the courts all over again. So it's been a long, drawn-out process, and it's still going to continue to be a long, drawn-out process. It will take us at least through late May, and this depends on whether the legislature will take additional steps to change the calendar. Uh, So there's still a few complications and kinks that need to be worked out, but the bottom line is that uh, new congressional and state Senate apps will be required this year. Jeff, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks for reaching out to me. Jeffrey Weiss, New York Law School. This past Sunday was Easter for Ukrainian Orthodox Christians. New York is home to the largest population of Ukrainians in the United States, and the Easter bread blessing at St. Volodymyr Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral on West 82nd Street was packed. But outside of Ukraine and Russia, Canada is home to the largest population of Ukrainians in the world. In the 19th century, the Canadian government recruited Ukrainians specifically to farm the cold Canadian prairie. And today, the city of Edmonton, the capital of Alberta, is home to almost 100,000 Ukrainian Canadians. Since Russia invaded Ukraine in February, the community in Edmonton has rallied, supporting the war effort and welcoming immigrants. Ukraine church groups are particularly active. Lucy Grindon traveled to Edmonton to report on the efforts of one church. When you head to baggage claim at the Edmonton airport, the first thing you see is a table decked out with blue and yellow balloons. Volunteers at the booth wait around the clock to greet new arrivals from Ukraine. Around 300 have arrived in Edmonton since the war began. Late on a recent Sunday night, Yaroslav Kostuk arrives to meet his sister and her daughter. There's a pile of stuffed animals at the booth. Kostuk picks out a polar bear. He hasn't seen his sister in five years. A woman and a small girl come through the doors, and he rushes up to them and hugs them. Ivan Lipovic, the volunteer at the booth, stands back and watches. That's a family. (laughs) Kostuk hands his niece the polar bear, and he points to Lipovic. The little girl runs up to Lipovic and gives him a hug. She says thank you in Ukrainian. (laughs) And she heads with her mom and her uncle off to baggage claim. Irina Polishuk arrived in Edmonton two weeks ago. She recalls the moment at the airport when she first saw the welcoming volunteers. For a refugee, the people who are meeting you at the, at the airport, at any place where they arrive, um, they are the most important people at that moment, like parents to a child, a frightened child. Irina Kravitz-Kuzmich is the president of the Ukrainian Women's Organization in Edmonton. She also attends St. John's Ukrainian Orthodox Cathedral and volunteers to greet new arrivals at the airport. 
She says the work has become a central part of her life. I'm almost every day there, and in and, and this point, I can say that my life has completely changed. Many of the other volunteers at the airport booth are also members of St. John's Cathedral. It's the largest Ukrainian Orthodox church in Edmonton. In the last few months, the cathedral has become a focus of aid both to Ukraine and to new arrivals fleeing the war. Father Cornel Zubritsky, one of the cathedral's priests, recalls the night these efforts began. February 24th, he turned on the TV to see if the war in Ukraine had started, and he saw reports of shelling. I said to my wife, you know, I, I, I better go to church and I better open up the cathedral because there may be people who will want to just come by and pray. They're going to want to come by and just be with someone else. They don't want to be alone. Um, so I just put my coat on. And by the time I got here, there was already one family in front of the church waiting to get in. In the weeks since, many have come to the cathedral to pray, but also to plan and organize. In the corner of the church basement, there's a pile of donated suitcases. Soon they'll be packed with medical supplies and carried by volunteers to Poland and then delivered to Ukraine. As Father Zubritsky explains, it's the fastest and most reliable way to get the supplies where they're needed. Most of this stuff ends up going to either field hospitals or hospitals in cities where they're just running short of even basic things like Tylenol for pain control. So this is, this is just generic um, Costco acetaminophen tablets. That's a big box. And then we have some gauze. And this is, I think, a cold pack. And then, uh, of course, you have kits for soldiers. Th- those have been requested as are, are the first aid kits. As we're heading back up the stairs, we run into Petro Motika, the cathedral's caretaker. He says he hopes to help transport the medical supplies. So you, you're thinking about um, going to Poland uh, to take some of the suitcases? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I have a dream to help <laughs> Yeah, Ukrainian people, actually, because I'm originally from Ukraine. The next morning is Palm Sunday. After church, Solomia Cherkovska and her father head to a small classroom in the basement. Cherkovska has been helping with the packing and shipping of medical supplies, but her day job is teaching kindergarten. She's planning to start a daycare center here at the church for newly arrived Ukrainian kids, so she needs to figure out the classroom's capacity. It used to be a preschool, so it's already equipped with tiny tables for little kids. Tato is measuring um, this uh Uh, room Uh, so we know uh, how many kids we can place here uh, because there's so many regulations that we have to adhere to. Most of Tchaikovsky's family and friends are still in Ukraine. She says the relief work helps her feel less powerless in the face of the war no matter how much time it takes. My husband is saying that he almost never sees me, so <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of sad because it's also a sacrifice, and um, you know, I, I don't know how long I can keep going like this, but I also know that um, I'm not I'm not in this by myself. It's like a beehive, and we're all working towards one cause, and and you know, I'm this little bee who is doing something, and it makes me feel good. Uh, it helps me keep going through this horror, uh, like time in 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 uh, the history of my country and in 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 my life i don't know if what i would have what i would do if i didn't have this Tchaikovska says it'll take a few months to get the daycare center up and running when it does open they'll welcome ukrainian kids and also provide jobs for immigrant women next week a volunteer will carry another round of medical supplies back to ukraine lucy grinden columbia radio news this is Uptown Radio. I'm Clark Ono. And I'm Clara Sophia Daly. 
For our next stop on the show, we're going underground to the subway stations that have been a lot in the news this year. In February, after a series of violent crimes, Mayor Adams announced a crackdown, the Subway Safety Plan, an initiative which includes more police on trains and a plan to get homeless people out of stations. Now street performers who play there say they're also being targeted, even though they're doing nothing wrong. Julian Abraham reports. At the 168th Street subway station in the Bronx, a performer who goes by the name of Baroque Barbie sits in a tiny chair playing the cello. That's not her real name. We're using her stage name to protect her personal safety. Baroque Barbie is wearing something like Marie Antoinette would wear, an extravagant pink gown and a costume wig shaped like a beehive. Playing cello in public is her full-time job and her passion. It's been so freeing. I don't have a boss, I don't have co-workers, I don't have employees. I answer only to myself and I make my own schedule and I'm doing what I love to do. Baroque Barbie's husband is also a street performer. For them, going to work can mean, on top of the usual stresses of a job, they also have to worry about getting arrested. My husband and I, we've experienced a lot of police harassment. Um, busking is legal. You do not need a permit. And there are a few very simple rules to follow that are very common sense. She's right. According to both New York City law and the MTA, busking is legal and allowed in the subways. You don't need a permit. There are a few regulations, like not blocking foot traffic or how loud the music can be, but Baroque Barbie doesn't use an amp, she plays the cello. Her music doesn't even come close to hitting the decibel limit, and she usually sets up in a corner so she doesn't block foot traffic. We even have them printed out, carry the rules with us at all times. And yet, the police, depending on how many people are observing, you know, whether they're witnesses, anyone has a camera out, they, they like to try to make things very difficult for us. What's happening to Baroque Barbie is an example of what's happening more with many street performers since Mayor Adams pledged to clean up the subways. She says police often say to her, you can't be here, you need a permit, or need to be a member of Muni, Music Under New York. And today we're at uh, Grand Central Terminal celebrating the 25th auditions for Music Under New York. Music Under New York. It's a program funded by the MTA. Muni accepts a limited number of acts every year and schedules performances and promotion. When Muni musicians play, they look like any other act, except they get a big pink sign that says Music Under New York. But it's not necessary to be a Muni member to perform in the subways. The street performers I spoke with say it's almost a cliche at this point for the police and MTA to make this error, mistaking Muni membership for some sort of illegal permit. And the MTA appears to have made the same mistake in an email to Uptown Radio. Quote, the MTA sponsors the very popular Music Under New York program that allows musicians to play throughout the subway system. If you didn't catch that, that was an MTA spokesperson incorrectly stating that Muni allows musicians to play in the subway when really anyone can. When asked to clarify, the MTA declined further comment. Busking was not always legal in New York. In the 1930s, the New York mayor at the time, Fiorella LaGuardia, banned busking in all forms. Though illegal, it was often not enforced, like jaywalking. And busking became an important form of protest in the 60s against the Vietnam War. The back of the march had not yet left Central Park. That's how many people we were. In 1985, a landmark city court case, People v. Manning, ruled the ban to be unconstitutional 
and that busking was a protected form of free speech, even in the subways. Fast forward to this year, Mayor Eric Adams made a promise to make subways safer, hoping to ease New Yorkers' fear. We hear it all the time. I hear it every time I'm on the subway system. People tell me about their fear of using the system, and we're going to ensure that fear is not New York's reality. And so in the, wake of the-, the mayor's plan includes removing homeless people from subway stations, but some street performers say they feel as though they're being swept up and thrown in the same category. I've had cops tell me that like I'm nothing more than like one step above a beggar. Aaron Gammon makes a living playing music. We're standing upstairs in the VIP section at Busker Ball, a battle of the bands for buskers. We're in a warehouse-sized bar, and as we're talking, we have to keep ducking against the walls because people in giant clown costumes are trying to squeeze through. Gammon says he's noticed more police harassment since Mayor Adams' announcement. Uh, recently, they've just been more concerned about uh, street musicians. Gammon is black, and he says this makes the stakes feel higher when he's approached by cops. I guess it is different from like a white person, because now I actually have to be like, my life might be on the line because of like, you know, playing music in the street somewhere. So it's, it's super stressful just to even think about. Standing nearby, leaning against an IKEA bookshelf lined with tequila shots and red plastic cups, is Sean Carey. He's not a musician, but performs his own type of act in the subway. I am a poet, so I write poems for people on the spot. I set up with a table and a little sign and a typewriter, and uh, people will come up and request poems on different subjects. He says the problem with cops isn't limited to musicians, but extends to other performers like him. Just this year, he says he's had two interactions with police and was kicked out of the Union Square station both times. But I was told after this had happened, I was speaking with another musician, and they told me that this was a response to some of the crime that had uh, taken place in the subway and that the cops, for whatever reason, were cracking down on performers in order to try and, under the premise of, of making things safer. We reached out to the mayor's office and the NYPD asking about incidents of subway performers being arrested or ticketed incorrectly, but neither responded to a request for comment. Nearby, Justin Sight is standing on a tiny balcony overlooking the stage. He's performing a magic trick for a cheerful couple who are really impressed. I love it! In this trick, Sight somehow makes black ink appear on the couple's hands, even though he's about a yard away from them. Right after, they book him on the spot for a private show this weekend. Sight says he's had a couple of run-ins with police, especially in the Times Square station. He had to go to court. The ticket was thrown out, but it had a chilling effect. Sight says he never went back. Since then, he says he makes most of his living playing in parks or booking private shows. No more magic for subway riders. Julian Abraham, Columbia Radio News. This Saturday is the second annual Poem in Your Pocket Day held in Kew Gardens, Queens. It's sponsored by the Kew Gardens Council for Recreation and the Arts. At the event, this weekend, poets and neighbors will step up to the mic and perform any poem of their choosing. 
Emily Schatz spoke with organizers to see what's different about this year. On a typical day, Lefferts Boulevard in Kew Gardens is filled with the sound of cars going by and birds singing. This Saturday, though, residents will hear a different kind of singing. That was Hindu monk Shubani Chaitanya, who plans to read two verses from Hindu scripture in Sanskrit. The verse she's chanting tells the story of a student who asks a teacher about what gives his body the power to function. Poem in Your Pocket Day was started in New York the year after 9-11 and has now branched off to be a nationally celebrated event. But this is the second year Kew Gardens is hosting a poetry reading in honor of it. Organizer Ann Craig says the event is meant to bring the community together after a stressful few years, just as she says Poem in Your Pocket Day brought New Yorkers together then. Kew Gardens is a very diverse neighborhood, as is all of Queens. And as we have been sort of drumming up interest of getting people out into the streets here, we've been constantly telling people, you know, read a poem in your native language. You know, don't feel the need for it to have to be in English. Craig and the performers hope to celebrate the diversity of the neighborhood through poetry. Around three of every 10 residents are Asian, and around four of every 10 residents are Hispanic. This year, New York City's poet laureate Elizabeth Schwartz will be reading an original work. What is first-generation American if not a gamble on the promise our todays will envy our tomorrows? Schwartz is still deciding which of her poems she'll perform, but she does know that she wants to advocate for her community through her work. And I want to make that conversation happen through poetry while also celebrating the immigrant community and specifically my experience as a first-generation American. Chitanya is also focusing on unity among the diverse population in Kew Gardens with her choice of verse and describes it in a way that only a spiritual leader could. At the level of the body, we're different because we um, we're maybe of a different skin color, different culture. We speak different languages, come from different traditions. But at the level of the self, which is a supreme consciousness, we are one. Kew Gardens Poem in Your Pocket Day is this Saturday at Lefferts Boulevard and 83rd Avenue from noon to 3. It's free for anyone to attend. Emily Schutz, Columbia Radio News. Next in our commentary series, Chantel Destra shares the importance of staying true to who you are. When I was 14, I was very scared about starting high school. I barely knew anyone at the school, and I was really shy, so I was scared about making friends. When I made friends, they were really into dancing. They'd been doing it for years and were part of my school's dance club. I'd never been drawn to dancing, but I was determined to join the club to spend time with them. So I auditioned. I wanted to hide, but the room was surrounded by these huge mirrors. I remember how cold the dance floor felt under my bare feet. I struggled with the choreography. There was all this fancy footwork and formations that didn't seem to mesh with my body. Before I knew it, it was time. The dance leaders split us up into small groups to perform. Everyone else sat and watched. Three, two, one. The up-tempo music started, and I immediately forgot the choreography. My group was going one way, I was going the other. It was a complete mess. I was so embarrassed. 
I did make the team. Well, actually, I was chosen to be a dance apprentice because my moves were so bad. It turns out I didn't even like dancing, and the dance club turned out to be a graded class that met before school. I struggled every morning to get out of bed at 5 a.m. When I'd leave the house, the sun was barely out, and I'd fall into this zombie-like spirit on my commute. In dance class, I always felt self-conscious about my moves. They never got better. The class also had all these graded tests on the choreography. It was my worst nightmare. I was spending time with my friends, but I wasn't true to who I was, and I paid the price for it until I quit my senior year. I wish I could say I learned my lesson back then, but this pattern continued into my adult life. If you ask any of my family members, they'll tell you I love journalism. It's something I told them each thousands of times. I studied it in college along with marketing, but when I graduated, I was afraid of not making money. So I went the safe route and started my career in marketing and stayed in it for four long years. Imagine working from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. on something you don't enjoy. The one thing I looked forward to was lunch. I'd eat a tuna sandwich, take long walks on the streets of Midtown, and sit on the benches near Columbus Circle. I'd watch people and wonder what they did with their lives. I dreamed of waking up and doing work that I loved. Then the pandemic hit, and I was furloughed from my job. The career that I thought was safe turned out not to be. Finally, I had to follow my gut. So I thought, why not do what I love? I decided to attend graduate school for journalism, hands down one of the best decisions of my life. I always think back to the dance club and my marketing job when I'm faced with a tough decision, like whether or not to go on an expensive girl's trip or go out for drinks when I have schoolwork to do. Now, I challenge myself to make decisions based on my own happiness, not based on what I think is right or easy, but what truly makes me happy. Chantel says she still doesn't enjoy dancing, but the lessons it's taught her are invaluable. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Steering the ship today was executive producer Mark Gilcrest. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Dave Marquez. Our day reporters were Rebecca Robinson and Emily Schatz. Director Lucy Grindon led our studio production with Chantel Destra and David Newtown. Julian Abraham and Sarah Yukobaitis produced the news. Senior editor Linnea Arden and assistant editor Chantel Destra led our copy team. Our instructors, Sally Herships, Ben Shapiro, and Robert Smith advised our staff. Special thanks to our guest editor today, Stephen Bishaha. I'm Clark Wunnell. And I'm Clara Sophia Daly. Uptown Radio is live on Thursdays at 4. Until next time, you can always find us on uptownradio.org. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening.